Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Talking Tudors episode 117 and the second instalment of the All Things Tudor Queens and Consorts series. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. July's prize is an amazing Tudor book bundle, which includes the following titles. Forgotten Queens in Medieval Nerdly Modern Europe, edited by Dr. Valerie Schutte and Dr. Estelle Peronk. Mary I and the Art of Book Dedications by Dr. Valerie Schutte and Dr. Schutte's latest book, Princess Mary and Elizabeth Tudor and the Gift Book Exchange. A huge thank you to Dr. Shooty for sponsoring this fantastic prize. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about portraiture of the six wives of Henry VIII is Roland Hoy. Roland graduated from Concordia University in Canada with a BA degree in art history. He's the author of The Turbulent Crown, The Story of the Tudor Queens, and the co-creator of the Mary Queen of Scots colouring book. Roland's research interests include Tudor portraiture, and his Tudor-related hobbies include miniature portrait painting and making illuminated manuscripts. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Roland. How are you? Good evening, uh, where I am, and good morning to you, I believe. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much. Now, let's start by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Well, my name is Roland Hoy, and I graduated from art history at Concordia University in Canada. And then after that, I went to work in interpretive media uh, with the National Park Service, uh, California State Parks, and the U.S. Forest Service. So now I currently work as a writer, tutor uh, society. And what actually sparked your interest in the fascinating tutors? Well, I've always been interested in history, but I have to say, particularly with the tutors, it was one photograph. So when I was about six or seven, my parents uh, took our family to London, England for a holiday. So we went to all the places, the Tower of London, Buckingham Palace, particularly Madame Tussauds, uh, which I don't really remember except the horrible Chamber of Horrors. And my parents picked up the uh, program brochure and you know, we went back home afterwards. And later on, when I was about, I'd say 12 or 13, I came across the brochure and inside they had a picture of Henry VIII and his six wives. And I was just fascinated by that one particular picture, this, you know, this big man with all the jewels and the big brocade and everything like that, surrounded by these six women. Who are they? So I started looking them up, you know, in the encyclopedia and in books that my high school, actually, I was grateful that we had a good range of tutor books, actually. And, and I just became fascinated by that afterwards. So thanks to that one photo, I would say. Yeah, that's wonderful. Normally people will have a book or a movie, so that's a really interesting take. So, Roland, you're the author of The Turbulent Crown, the story of the Tudor Queens, and you're also the Mm -hmm. co-creator of the Mary Queen of Scots colouring book. So can you just tell us briefly about these titles? The colouring book uh, is a collaboration with uh, a very talented artist named uh, Dmitry Yavkoski. He did the illustrations while I wrote the text. Uh, the Turbulent Crown book is a book I wrote in 2017, and it's about the lives of the Tudor queens, the queen consorts, and the queen regnants, meaning the, the six wives of Henry VIII as a consorts, and Elizabeth of York, and the queen regnants being, of course, Queen Mary, even Queen Jane, and Queen Elizabeth. So it's kind of like the book book ends with Elizabeth of York, and then ends with Elizabeth I. And I kind of think of it as a modern um, Agnes Strickland's uh, Lives of the Queens of England, if you put it that way. Now, today we're going to focus on one of your main research interests at the moment, and that's Tudor portraiture of the six Mm -hmm. queen consorts of Henry VIII. So before we dive into this really interesting topic, what makes this subject fascinating for you? I think when you read about these fascinating people, you want to know what they look like. So imagine we read about Henry VIII, but for some reason, no portraits exist of Henry VIII or Queen Elizabeth I or anybody who is a great figure in history. And that leaves a big gap in, in we want to know what these people look like because that helps in our understanding of them, I think. So I think it's a very, uh, it's, it's great to look into that. And also to me, portraiture is fascinating because in terms of Tudor portraiture, Sometimes it's a fun guessing game and detective game about trying to find out who this person really is or this person who is really not. And one of the portraits I found recently was uh, a image of Anne Boleyn actually in the Black Book of the Garter, which has been not has not been noticed for actually 155 years. Uh, it was actually mentioned in a footnote in a journal called Archaeologia a long time ago in, in one sentence in a commentary about another article. So I came across this and I looked up the image, which is actually online. I mean, everyone can see it. It's been online for a while. But the person who wrote the article, George Scharf, the director of the National Portrait Gallery, 
back in the Victorian era, I've, I've mentioned that it was Anne Boleyn because the sitter had an AB pendant from her neck. So I looked it up and, you know, in, indeed so, indeed so. So um, I like to think I brought this back into the public consciousness and people can agree whether it's her or not. But I do think it's a very strong case or another contemporary portrait of Anne because it was done in 1534 and by Lucas Hornbaut, who did other portraits of the Tudor court at that time. Yeah, fantastic. As you're talking, I'm actually picturing the portrait because I know I do know mm. it well. I agree with you. It seems highly likely that it is Anne. So Catherine of Aragon was Henry VIII's first wife, of course. The couple married in June 1509 and remained together for more than two decades. Now, a portrait that we often see in connection with Catherine is one by Mikkel Sitao. However, the identification of the sitter is in fact hotly debated and you get people get into lots of discussions about this. So can you talk to us about this particular portrait and its various kind of re-identifications that it's had? Oh, certainly. I have assumed and many people have assumed that it's a picture of uh, Catherine of Aragon as a young woman, as a girl actually. But in 2008, there was a art historian named Paul Matthews who suggested otherwise. He thinks that it's Mary Tudor, Henry VIII's sister. And uh, he had a whole bunch of arguments for his art, for his uh, believing why, including that he thought uh, Sita was not in England during Henry VII's reign, so he could not have painted Catherine when she was at in England. He says there's no resemblance to Catherine in terms of comparison to other pictures. As well, her jewelry, he thought, might be significant because the K's and the C's did not denote Catherine in in, with a K in English, or Catalina with C as, in, as it will be written in her native Spain, but rather Charles V, the, the future emperor, so Charles or Carolus with a K. And because there were examples, I think he said that one of Charles' sisters had jewelry that was similar with C's and K's, that there was an imperial connection to the Habsburgs rather than the Spanish family with Catherine. And interestingly, the Kunsthistorisch, which is hard to pronounce, museum, has actually, who owns a picture, has actually accepted Matthew's argument. So if you go there, and I think the website will have this too, it is called Mary Tudor, not Catherine of Aragon. It's a beautiful portrait. Whoever the it sitter is, is, it it is, is, it is just a stunning portrait, just the pose of the sitter. It's quite mm-hmm. contemplative. And mm-hmm. yeah, I really love it. I, I kind of hope that it was Catherine because I think it's such a beautiful <laughs> portrait. But I, I can see, yeah. Yeah, I'm inclined to think it's Catherine as well because there are a set of pictures of, of her sisters, uh, Juana, Maria, I think, uh, the other daughters of Ferdinand, Isabella, and they all look alike. They really do. That's they so do. true. Yeah, there that is definitely a resemblance. So. Slash Mary looks like one of the sitters. And I think the K, the necklace with the K says Catherine and it has little red and white roses. So uh, a reference to her being the person that unifies the houses of uh, Lancaster, York, because she will be married to Prince Arthur, who will have the heir to carry on a Tudor dynasty. Yeah. So I think there's a good argument for Catherine, but I, I think it's most likely Catherine. Fantastic. And for our listeners, I'll post these portraits after our episode goes live so that everyone can have a look and decide for themselves what they think. So what Mm -hmm. about other contemporary portraits of Catherine? What do we have? There are actually a lot because she was queen for about 20 years. So we have stained glass of her. There are miniatures by Lucas Hornbow. There's about at least two or three. There's one with her 
uh, wearing the red dress and the small golden cap, which is very uh, familiar. People have seen that. Of course, the one with her with a little monkey. Yes, That's a very the popular monkey, picture. Yes. So people have seen that. And it's a close-up of a standard image of her with the gable hood. Recently, there was one identified as Catherine, used to be called Catherine Park. She's wearing red and gold. The National Portrait Gallery has it, I believe, and there's a copy at Heber Castle. So it's been matched to that portrait of a younger Henry VIII. They're kind of looking at each other when you put them together. So now it's believed to be Catherine, uh, which is, I think, very sound because if it was Catherine Parr, the costume was just too early for Catherine Parr. It's a very, uh, it's a gable hood with a very long lappets. Right, yes, much earlier. So that would be the time of Catherine in 1520. So it's, I think it's Catherine Barragon. Fantastic. It, like you say, it is um, a bit of detective work, isn't it? Trying to piece together the costume and any other kind of provenance It's great fun, though. It is really it is. great fun. Because you have to look through other portraits, look through inventories, hopefully to find jewelry lists. And, oh, yes, that's the, the jewel that's described as this portrait, how, which we'll talk about after. I mean, how interesting is that to match that with a sitter wearing what seems to be that particular jewel? Yeah, I love it. It's what makes it so addictive, this research, I think. Now, Anne Boleyn's appearance has been the topic of, of course, many discussions and papers mm-hmm. and books and, and anything you can think of, really. Unfortunately, the only contemporary likeness of Henry VIII's second queen consort is a small portrait medal, probably struck in 1534 when she was expecting the couple's second child. Can you tell us about this incredible artifact? Yes, it's a medal. I have one here. It's about, I would say, two inches across, made of lead, uh, struck in 1534, and it's believed to have been made to celebrate Anne's upcoming pregnancy. So she was pregnant at the time, apparently, and it was made to celebrate the the future heir, the upcoming heir. Uh, it has her motto, the most happy, the most fortunate. That's what uh, how it translates. Exactly, really. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, because it's soft lead, it's been damaged. So Lucy Churchill, who has, who has uh, made a reconstruction of it, a wonderful, beautiful reconstruction, her, her, her thought was that it wasn't actually deliberately damaged, as a lot of people think, that, oh, we don't like Anne Berlin, and she's no longer queen, so it'll destroy this or, or mar this metal. But apparently, her thought is that it was just simply put away and maybe some books or something heavy was stacked on top of it and it just got damaged that way that's why the nose is flattened and the forehead as well yeah I actually own the I I own the same reconstruction that you do I absolutely love it it sits on my desk I'm looking at it right now as I talk to you and it is it's quite a magnificent reconstruction isn't I think Lucy's done a stellar job and she was there you know studying the original medal for how lucky how lucky she she was doing that Absolutely. I love the medal. I have one too, of course, and I have the bigger plaque and actually the small silver pendant as well. Yes, so I actually have the pendant too. <laughs> recreating this, a beautiful item. It is absolutely stunning. Now, when we think of Anne today, of course, I'm sure that many people immediately picture the portrait of Anne that's housed at the National Portrait Gallery in London, the one where she's wearing her famous bee necklace. So what can you tell us about this particular work and that pattern that was obviously copied a number of times? Oh, one thing I would mention about the medal before we go on to this. Uh, She's wearing an English gable hood, which is interesting. Because a lot lot of people say, oh, it's it's very odd. It's not her because Anne is always wearing a French hood. She never wore a gable hood, which is not true, of course. 
when Anne wanted to present herself officially on this medal, she chose to wear an English hood. Yes, I think that's a really important point to make. And also the fact that she went to her death wearing a, yes, an English yes. hood. Yes, yeah. uh, a hood of English make, I think the actual quote is. Yeah, so, so I think for, that's you know, interesting. So Anne wearing, I think the, I, the, the misconceptions that we always think of Anne with the famous bee portrait, hence the pearled French rounded hood. About the, the bee type necklace, which is interesting, I'm glad you referred to it as the B type because for a long time it was called the NPG National Portrait <laughs> Gallery type. But over the years, uh, there have been so many copies and variants of this portrait that have popped up. There are at least a dozen, uh, about a dozen or so. So it's not exclusively the NPGs anymore. So it is the most famous picture van, uh, but it was actually not in the public consciousness until the late 1800s, I believe. Before that, it was always another picture of Anne, which we'll talk about after. She's wearing a gable hood, and it's by, uh, it's from a drawing by Holbein. So for the longest time, that image was associated with Anne Boleyn until, uh, I think probably because when the National Portrait Gallery acquired the portrait of uh, the, the B-type, so to speak, in the late 1800s, people got to see that, and it got disseminated. So. Hence, the shift went from the Holbein to the B-type portrait as uh, the official image of Anne. And it, it is. It's a wonderful portrait. Again, I've got that sitting next to the, the medal on my desk, so I look at both of them <laughs> to compare. Don't we all? Don't <laughs> <Yes>. we all? <laughs> <laughs> now, let's, let's talk for a moment about Jane Seymour. So her reign was even more brief, unfortunately, than her predecessors. So, however, a portrait of the Queen by Hans Holbein the Younger actually survives. Very lucky for Jane. So can you describe it for us? It's based on a sketch of Jane, a black and white uh, drawing of Jane. Uh, Jane is wearing red, a gabled hood, and there were, from this pattern, many were reproduced. So we have a lot of copies of this, and Jane would be wearing different jewels, different jewelry. There's even one of her wearing black in that outfit uh, in Ripon Cathedral in New York, which is interesting. Uh, going back to the Anne Boleyn portrait, if you don't mind, no, about the B portrait. Unfortunately, the majority or probably all of them are Elizabethan copies. We don't know whether any of them, because they have not been tested, whether they're actually done during her lifetime. But because of the quality, the standard looks very flat. They don't. She doesn't look particularly lively or lifelike. They're just mediocre copies made uh, during the time of Elizabeth. And these were for what they called long galleries back then. So your, the elite had these houses and they would have long galleries and the long galleries would be decorated with portraits of kings and queens. And uh, the Anne Boleyn type of the bee necklace are pretty, uh, I would say almost all of them were made to accompany a Henry VIII painting. So that's why you always have the inscription Anne Boleyn, wife of Henry VIII. It's in that context. So they were never made to stand alone. They were always in context with the king. So the portraits of Jane, which we have a few as well, that were like, you know, Jane Seymour in Latin, uh, the wife of Henry VIII. So they were as well created in that context as long gallery pictures. I still hold hope, Roland, that we'll find a contemporary portrait hidden in some stately home of Anne at some point. That would be really amazing. I was actually 
lucky enough to be invited to see the National Portrait Gallery portrait when it was mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. conservation in Chelsea a number of years ago. And it was, I can tell you, an amazing experience to see it out of the frame, just sitting there in front of me, able to look at the back of the portrait and the front that was in, in the end concluded that it was early 17th century, I believe that one. Mm-hmm. So around about 1600 or something like that. So a yeah, beautiful portrait, amazing. Now, did you know that portrait in the 1970s or late 60s has a big crack in the center that's very, very visible? And they fixed it so well that it's almost invisible now. It's incredible what they can do. I totally agree with you. It was in in desperate need of conservation a number Mm. of years back again. So obviously it's something they need to maintain every so often, but they do do incredible work now. That's, That's for sure. There are other Anne Boleyn portraits. Would you like to get into that too? Yeah, sure. There's a whole bunch of those. Uh, there are two drawings by Holbein. A very famous one is the one I've talked about before, which was in very uh, high circulation as Jane, uh, as, sorry, as Anne Boleyn from 1649. So the earliest copy dated by from an engraving by Wenceslas Holler, 1649. So whether it is Anne or not, we really don't know because the earliest mention is 1649. I mean, that's 110, 15 odd, odd years after she died. But it was a very popular image and it was accepted as Anne Boleyn uh, until the more popular B image has been was brought into the public uh, sphere. And as well, the Holbein portrait of Anna Boleyn and you might know which one I'm talking about. It's a lady with a very thick chin. She's a, a pronounced double chin, very plainly dressed, looking to the left. So that has been very controversial. It has been around, it was identified by a gentleman called John Cheek, who was a tutor to Edward VI uh, in the 1550s. So based on that, people thought, well, you know, it, it, there's a good chance it was Anne Boleyn, but it was never widely accepted in the public uh, consciousness until 1983 David Starkey and a art historian named John Rollins together they wrote an article saying that Cheek was actually correct in saying that the picture was at Anne Boleyn so they re-identified it as her based on a number of things that Cheek was correct she had a swollen chin because Anne apparently had a swollen chin at her coronation she had a high ruff around her neck because she had to conceal a goiter. Oh, yes. Yes. I think that's one of those very hostile <laughs> accounts of, of the queen. <laughs> yeah. So that was one of the reasons why. And another was that, oh, she's in a state of undress. That's how they put it. So, but because she was queen, she was one of the rare people who were allowed to be shown like this, which I, uh, I found kind of odd because that's not, I wouldn't say that's a state of undress really. Yeah, and and of oh, course, there's the he, portrait of um, Henry. I think it's Henry Fitzroy that's wearing a yes, similar, yes, yes, exactly. similar thing. He has a nightcap on, and his he has his uh, laces undone on his shirt, and that's very. Uh, so I think they take that argument that royalty is very. Yeah, they were allowed to take such liberties, and also there was the suggestion that Anne Boleyn had a very immoral and loose court. Hence, she was allowed to be undressed, but she's really not undressed in this picture, I find. Yeah, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating portrait. I actually quite like that one. And I, I feel quite drawn to that particular portrait that you've described. So hopefully we'll see that more work needs to be done, yeah. I think, on that, definitely. Yeah. But there are a number of arguments against that, though. Yes, there are, of course. Yeah. yeah. 
the hair so, color, I think, is particularly is probably you know, one of the the ones I've seen more more often. Although not everyone agrees that that's hair that we're seeing, so it's 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 a very controversial yeah, yeah. picture, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people have worse from the portrait that from a black and white copy of the picture. They have not seen in the color. And if you look at it, I believe it's hair. It looks like she's blonde. So I think that's a very strong argument that uh, it's not Anne Boleyn who was very famously dark haired. Just touching back on Jane again for a moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So apart from the Holbein portrait, do we have any other contemporary portraits of Jane Seymour? There are a bunch as well, because even though she was only queen for about a year and a half or so, she died in 1537 October when she gave birth to uh, Prince Edward. Because she was supposedly Henry VIII's favorite wife, and and factually she was uh, Edward VI's mother, her memory was perpetuated. So we do have the very famous Whitehall mural, now lost. uh, it, It was lost in the fire. Uh, but luckily, paintings were made of this particular picture, and it shows Jane on one side with Elizabeth of York facing Henry VIII and Henry VII. Yeah, that's a really interesting painting, and I would have loved to have seen the original on the wall in Whitehall mm-hmm, Palace. Mm-hmm. So it's by the sounds of it, though, they're made after Jane's death. So we've got the Holbein, which we believe was was made during her reign, and then other portraits that were made oh, to, yes, yes. To, re- to keep her memory alive, as you say. Yep. Yes. So there's Fantastic. another picture of her with Henry VIII and with Prince Edward and with the two princesses at Hampton Court. Yes. That's a beautiful painting. Uh, so again, that's Jane's memory being kept alive. And interestingly, the queen at that time was Catherine Parr. So maybe Catherine Parr wasn't very happy about, you know, this <laughs> Jane Seymour again. And why am I not in this painting? Yeah, poor Catherine. That's true. (laughs) Now, um, following the death of his beloved third wife, Jane Seymour, the king, of course, married Anne of Cleves, who was 24 years old at the time, a good deal younger than her 48-year-old Henry VIII. So tell Mm. us about Holbein's portrait. I'm sure everyone listening has heard about the Holbein portrait of Anne that so enticed the king. Yeah. So after he got rejected very famously by Christina of Denmark, (laughs) we all know the story there. Uh, she said, I would rather, uh, if I had two heads, I would give one to Henry VIII, or I suspect that my great aunt, Catherine of Aragon, was poisoned, and Anne Boleyn was in- innocently put to death, and the third one died because of giving birth. So she was not happy to be matched with Henry VIII. So he had to go looking look elsewhere. So they came upon the German court of Cleves, upon the daughters of Duke John of Cleves, Anne and Amelia. So they were at the court of Durin and Holbein was sent to paint their picture because a picture that was sent of Anne to England was not considered acceptable because they thought that it didn't really show her well and she was covered up with all her very big Germanic costume. So Holbein was sent to the court of Durin to paint her again. He did a panel portrait and a miniature. Both were said to be very lifelike, very good likenesses. And she looks very attractive in the picture. But when Henry VIII saw her in person, so he did accept her as his wife after seeing the picture. So he liked the pictures. But when they met on New Year's Day at Rochester, things did not go well for some reason, which remains very, very mysterious. He just did not like her. Seeing her in the flesh was different than seeing her in painting. 
Yes, I must say, I think that has to do with Henry's wounded ego after she uh, failed to recognize one of his famous dress ups that the king loved to dress up and surprise people. Poor Anne didn't realize it was the king. Oh, dear. I would, yeah, to be a fly on the wall that day, hey? (laughs) Now, yes, there's a famous story about that. He even brought a gift for her, and then he was so upset, uh, it was said that he never gave her the furs, he just left. Now, in July 1540, this is like yeah. a, this is like the bold and the beautiful Henry VIII story, isn't it? Henry VIII married Catherine Howard, of course, mm-hmm. like her cousin Anne. She ended her reign on the scaffold. Now, Catherine's associated with a number of portraits, in particular one after Hans Holbein the Younger. However, the sitter is now believed to be a member of the Cromwell family. So, do any contemporary portraits of Catherine actually survive? I'm inclined to think so. We would like to think so because it wouldn't be awful if we don't have a picture of Catherine Howard. So the one that comes into to comes to mind are two miniatures by Holbein uh, in the Buckluke collection and the Royal Collection of a young woman, very richly dressed with furred sleeves. Uh, and about 1540, 1541, I think we all know which one we're talking about. Uh, that has generally been accepted as Catherine. Though, I have to say, this was not the case until the 18th century when it was first called Catherine. And when it was engraved by Wenceslas Haller in the 1600s, one version of it was called uh, Mary Tudor, Sister Henry VIII. Goodness. So we do think it's Catherine. The argument now is for her jewelry. One of the pieces of jewelry that she wears is a pendant with a ruby, an emerald, and a hanging pearl. That seems to be uh, a specific jewel jewelry. It's called an oosh or a flower, which means a uh, it's, it's a brooch really that is in Catherine's jewelry list done in 1541. So. If that is the same, it's a good chance that it is. And what it comes down to is we really hope and like it to be Catherine Howard. There's no 100%. So when I, if I was to mention this, I like to put in brackets a little question mark. And about that panel portrait of the Cromwell family, it was thought to be Catherine in the late 1800s because the art historian Lionel Cust thought the sitter looked like the woman in the two hold by miniatures, the Bakluk one and the Royal Collection one. So based on that, he thought it was Catherine Howard. Mm-hmm. Uh, nowadays, we think it's probably, perhaps, who knows, uh, a member of the Cromwell family, probably Elizabeth Seymour Jane's sister, right. because she was yeah. married to Thomas Cromwell's son, Gregory. So being a prominent Seymour slash Cromwell, there's a good chance it's her and um, we, we don't know. Uh, recently, there was an exhibition by the Philip Mould Gallery. It was called Lost Faces, uh, the Rediscovery of the Tudors. And they have brought back this portrait and they, they argue it's her. But we're not sure based on what they think. It's a resemblance, again, between the uh, small miniatures and the, the larger panel pieces. Now, the, the National Portrait Gallery, we've mentioned it a few times. It's, of course, a treasure trove of Tudor portraits, and it's home to one by a Master John from circa around 1545, which for a time was thought to depict Lady Jane Grey. But as these uh-huh. things go, the sitter is now believed to be Catherine Parr. So what evidence is there to support this new identification? And Roland, do you agree with it? Yes, I do. Because uh, actually for a very long time, the portrait was accepted as Catherine Park for a very long time. 
until 1965, actually, when Roy Strong, the director of the National Portrait Gallery, they acquired that large Master John painting. And he matched that painting to a engraving by Magdalena de Pass and Simon de Pass, done in about 1620, which shows the same sitter with the same costume and particularly with a brooch with a crown on it. So, and, but it was inscribed the Lady Jane Grey. Right. So because of this one engraving, Roy Strong thought, oh, it's, it's actually not Catherine Parr, it's the Lady Jane Grey. And then moving forward uh, to, I think it was 2000, oh, actually 1996, a historian named Susan James wrote an article. No, it's, it's not Jane Grey, it's Catherine Parr. Based on, again, the crown brooch. She went through Catherine's jewelry uh, list of her inventory, and she found a mention of the jewel, which I'll actually read to you here. It was described as one oosh or flower, meaning a brooch, with a crown containing two diamonds, one ruby, one emerald, the crown being garnished with diamonds and three pearl pendants. So which is a match for the Master John Sitter's pendant. So it is Catherine Parr after all. Fantastic. I love that. I love that detective work. It's and and it's a reason why I love inventories. I'm obsessed with inventories for that particular because reason. Now people are looking into that. I don't think yeah. that people have actually looked into jewelry lists. So people are now looking at Catherine Jewelry's list and hopefully, you know, if there was one found Anne Boleyn would look uh, that's that right. Yeah. So true. All right. So when it comes to the portraiture of Henry VIII's queen consorts, what do you think is one of the most prevalent misconceptions? There's probably quite a few, but what do you think is one of the most prevalent ones? I would say the biggest misconception is that when we come across uh, pictures of unknown sitters, people automatically assume it's someone famous. Oh, you know, and there have been cases, uh, especially online, it's very easy to find something online and people just jump on it. Recently on Instagram, some of us, uh, some of you might know, a portrait of a lady wearing red uh, popped up and the person who was championing this, he said it's Anne Boleyn. But there's there's actually no reason uh, to believe it's her. Recently, there was a portrait of a young girl at the Metropolitan Museum of Art that's being called Catherine Howard these days. And it has been used on some book covers and in some books about Catherine. And honestly, uh, there's actually no reason to associate her with Catherine other than what her age looks right and the date looks right. But, you know, honestly, it could be any high ranking young woman of the time. And we would love it to be Catherine. You know, there are, there's a vacuum there, but we need the, we need the, proof about that and I think it's lacking so that's the biggest misconception to me that oh uh, unknown sitter has to be someone famous and probably a queen or a princess and there's that portrait there's a Yale miniature at the Yale uh, Center of British Art of a young woman that's been called Elizabeth it's been called Jane Grey it's been called Mary Tudor the queen and you know it's it's that and she might simply be unknown woman and she'll she might just stay that way yeah I agree with you and I think it's evidence of our insatiable appetite for the Tudors and our desperate need to make some sort of personal connection with them through portraiture which of course as you say is so important because we can make that connection when we see a portrait of a person but sometimes yes I think we jump to conclusions a little too too quickly exactly like the the Anne Boleyn portrait where 
we all want to find that lost portrait. I mean, did Holbein paint her? Wouldn't it be a, an assumption oh, that he did because he yeah. did work for her? He did designs for jewelry for her. He designed that famous arch for her coronation. So there was a close association of Holbein with the court at that time. So one would assume that he painted her, but what happened to it? Where is yeah. it? Did he, maybe he didn't paint her? And Yeah, I would be very surprised if he didn't paint a portrait of her. I'd be very surprised, but I suppose we need the evidence, don't we? We need at least the account or the the Mm -hmm. painting to turn up somewhere. Um, Now, Roland, tell us about one of your favourite Tudor portraits. It's not actually a painted portrait, but it's a portrait jewel. It's a checkers uh, locket ring. Isn't that beautiful? That's stunning. We all all love it. We all want it and we all want to hold it and touch it. (laughs) I was actually lucky enough to see it in person at the Elizabeth I exhibition at Greenwich uh, years ago. It's tiny. It was featured on that recent documentary with the lovely Tracy Ball. Oh, yes, and, yes, and yes. she was holding it. You could tell yeah, how yeah. fragile and delicate it is. It is. It is. It is. Uh, and there is actually controversy about that ring, too. Yes. Because it has been suggested that it's not Anne Boleyn, but it's Elizabeth herself as a young woman, which I don't think so because. She wasn't a person to look back, I think, especially during her younger years when her life was so full of danger. I mean, I don't think I would want to be reminded of that. And if the ring was done in about 1570, she was only in her early 40s. So there's really no reason to be so nostalgic as to look back to when I was a, a younger version of myself. And it's been said that it's been proposed that it's Catherine Parr. But again, I don't see a sound explanation for this because even though Catherine and Elizabeth were close when Catherine boarded Elizabeth after her father's death and she lived with uh, her and Thomas Seymour after Catherine died I mean that was years and years ago and I think the bond was met you know they were close that time but for her to perpetuate Catherine's memory in a ring that's so intimate and personal I don't see that Sorry, Roland, I was just, just going to say for our listeners, in case they're unaware, this this mm-hmm. ring that we're discussing actually opens up to reveal two very tiny, tiny portraits, which is what we're saying. One is definitely Elizabeth. The other, I believe, to be Anne Boleyn. And, but other people, as Roland's explaining, think that it might be a younger, a younger Elizabeth or a, a Catherine Parr as well. So it is another controversial Tudor item, isn't it? And actually, uh, speaking about questionable questionable uh, identities. The very famous picture of Anne Boleyn with the B pendant has not been 100% uh, accepted by scholars. Susan James, who wrote uh, about Catherine Parr and her, uh, we identified that Catherine Parr thinks it's Mary Tudor, actually, Henry VIII's sister. Oh, goodness. That would... (laughs) That would throw a spanner in the works. It does. It does. I I don't think many Anne fans are happy about (laughs) what she said. So her uh, reasoning is that uh, the sitter looks a lot like Mary Tudor in her famous so-called marriage portrait with Charles Brandon. Yes, yes. So she sees a connection. She sees a, she sees a very strong likeness again. You know, but that's very subjective, I think. You know, when you say, oh, she looks like her and he looks like him. And it's, it's very, that's a very personal opinion, I think. And again, and also she says B is for Brandon, not Bolden. Yeah. I, I don't buy. I, I don't think anyone has bought into that. And uh, but there is that opinion out there still. Now, Roland, I know that you actually have a number of Tudor-related hobbies yourself, including miniature portrait painting and making illuminated manuscripts. So I'd love to hear about the coronation books that you've worked on. Oh, thank you for mentioning that. 
Uh, yeah, one of my hobbies, my pastimes is painting miniatures. It's because I, I like art, I like drawing, I like painting. And I don't have access to these miniature, like I never have one. They're out of our reach. So why don't I, I'll make a copy uh, and I'll be happy with that. Uh, so I took it a step further. I made a coronation book of Anne Boleyn, first of all. What I did was I took the text, the coronation text uh, that was set down in a pamphlet from June 1533. So about two weeks after she was crowned, this pamphlet came out describing the propaganda, which which it really was uh, about a coronation because she was not a popular queen. So it was a, basically a whole prose praising Anne and the wonderful things and the wonderful tableau, the wonderful presentations and speeches that were given in her honor. So there, I found a copy of it, the British Museum, British Library has a copy of it in the original Old English. So I transcribed that uh, onto vellum. So I work on calfskin vellum, which uh, was the, uh, the main support back then for miniatures and fancy manuscripts. And I added in some illustrations and then had it nicely bound. And I had uh, the cover stand with a white falcon. And it's, it's, it looks very authentically 16th century, I'm happy to say. Yes. And now I'm working on one for Queen Elizabeth I. Fantastic. They're, they're lovely items to have um, in your Tudor study that's, mm. that provide inspiration for your writing. And the very last thing is a Tudor takeaway. So I ask all my guests for yeah. a suggestion for something for our listeners to watch or listen to or read after the episode. So do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? My takeaway would be not to sound geeky, but original primary sources they are so fun to read like letters and papers of henry VIII and the calendars of uh, uh dispatches from spain vienna and they you could find them online they were free very easily accessible and they were fun to read uh instead of just going to the secondary source go to the horse's mouth go to where it, it was first set down and sometimes you find surprises too like because a lot of facts i think are repeated over time that were not actually facts but they became facts over time but you go to a primary source and you find oh really that's what they said they actually said back then it's been misinterpreted over time and how interesting is that to go back to the source and i recommend this because they are easily accessible free and they are fun to read at least to me Roland, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk Tudors with me. Thank you for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.